Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Amanda Marcotte, senior politics writer at Salon, who examines Donald Trump's vow to impose a fascist regime if re-elected, and the detailed plans leaked by his campaign to dismantle what they call the administrative state. Alex Lawson, executive director of Social Security Works, who takes a critical look at the Republican Party's proposed fiscal commission that opponents say is a plan to cut Social Security and Medicare benefits. And Sasha Tabachnikova, a member of Local 33, representing graduate student teachers and researchers at Yale University, who talks about their successful 30-year struggle to win their first union contract. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Through his first year in office, Brazil's president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, has made preserving the Amazon rainforest a priority, a stark reversal from his predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro. Lula's enforcement agencies have targeted illegal miners and loggers in the rainforest and have had a substantial impact. The Economist magazine reports that the rate of deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon has declined 50% in 2023. The Amazon is a global treasure with 40% of the world's remaining rainforest, a quarter of the globe's biodiversity, and serves as an immense storage bank for carbon. Over the years, 18% of the Amazon has been deforested, and scientists warn of the global impact if one quarter of Brazil's rainforest disappears. Lula has promised to end deforestation by 2030, but must first overcome many problems, including legally specifying clear ownership rules over his nation's rainforest land. Nearly 30% of the Amazon is undesignated, meaning it is public land that does not have a declared purpose, such as a reserve. Such lands are deforestation hotspots. Environment Minister Maria Silva says the first step is to study the undesignated lands and title these areas as indigenous reserves or conservation areas. Since taking office in January, Lula has set aside eight indigenous reserves. However, the Rural Caucus in Congress, allied with miners and loggers, is resisting and working to push through legislation that would curtail indigenous land rights. America's Deep South is becoming the epicenter of a new HIV crisis ravaging mostly Republican Party-led states from Texas to North Carolina. A poll last fall found 9 out of 10 Mississippi residents support increasing funding for the state's struggling hospital system. Community advocates say the federal Medicaid program in the state, opposed by GOP Governor Tate Reeves and most Republicans, is the best way to secure the funding hospitals need to treat all patients, including those with HIV. Without new funding, 42% of the state's rural hospitals are at risk of closing. Mississippi rivals Louisiana as the poorest state in the nation. 
The area surrounding Mississippi's capital, Jackson, has three to five times the number of HIV cases as nearby predominantly white counties. Nationally, one in four people with HIV are currently covered by Medicaid. The Center for Public Integrity reports that southern states without Medicaid expansion are overburdening the federal Ryan White HIV AIDS program designed to fill insurance gaps, not provide comprehensive medical care. Expanded Medicaid would also make PrEP, a daily pill that's effective at preventing the spread of HIV, more widely available. Long before Donald Trump inspired the deadly January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, the nation witnessed years of an alarming increase in incidents of right-wing political violence. Despite the many warning signs, America's corporate mainstream media largely ignored the threat. According to the bipartisan think tank, Center for Strategic and International Studies, right-wing political violence accounted for more than 90% of all plots or attacks in the first half of 2020, far outpacing terrorism from any other source since 1990. Historian Rick Perlstein writes in Indies Times that big U.S. media has long had a blind spot for reporting on the rise of violent right-wing extremist groups. These media outlets missed the fact that the Tea Party was a classic reactionary and racist response to the election of Barack Obama, America's first black president. Major newspapers like the New York Times also missed the dangerous convergence between the Tea Party movement and the armed far-right Oath Keepers militia group. Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes is now a federal prisoner after being sentenced to 18 years for seditious conspiracy in the January 6th plot to overthrow the U.S. government. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Donald Trump continues to dominate the 2024 Republican Party presidential primary campaign, he faces a total of 91 charges in four different criminal cases. They include 44 federal charges and 47 state charges, all of them felonies. Trump, who denies wrongdoing in each case, is the first former president or presidential candidate to face prosecution for felony crimes. On the campaign trail, Trump has labeled his political enemies as vermin, vowing to root out what he called the threat from within. In recent speeches, Trump has also accused undocumented immigrants of poisoning the blood of our country. Echoing the toxic rhetoric used by World War II-era fascist dictators Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. At a December 5th Fox News town hall event in Iowa, Trump declined to rule out abusing power if he's re-elected, and said he'd be a dictator only on day one if he returns to the White House. While several major media outlets have raised the alarm about Trump's extremist rhetoric and detailed his plans to institute an authoritarian or fascist regime, most Republican Party politicians have dismissed these concerns or remained silent. 
Your reporter spoke with Amanda Marcotte, a senior politics writer at Salon.com, who talks about her recent article titled, Trump is Hiding His Fascist Plans in Plain Sight, and describes the threat posed by a second Trump presidency. At every rally, he talks about retribution, that he is going to use the White House to enact revenge on all his enemies. He makes winking promises to abuse his power. He went on Fox News and when directly asked if he would be a dictator, he jokingly said only on day one, which was his way of saying yes to his audience of supporters while creating plausible deniability to others. More importantly, he and his campaign have been leaking plans to the press to let the people know that he is serious. He's going to be a dictator. Like They leaked plans to Axios about his potential cabinet picks, which included Tucker Carlson for VP, Stephen Miller for attorney general, things like that. They leaked plans to the New York Times showing that Trump really wants to remake the federal government to remove all law-abiding bureaucrats and instead install opportunists who are going to just do his will, whether it's legal or not. It's, It's so classic fascist handbook stuff that you can tell that they are trying to send the message that this is going to be a fascist government. That's the plan. They're going to try to go as hard and fast in that direction as they can and see if they can break the system. And there have been all these very alarmed articles coming out in Axios and New York Times and stuff recounting this. And I think it's really important for listeners to understand that this information is coming from the Trump campaign. They're hiding this. They are deliberately seeding this information because they are trying to scare people. Absolutely. And do you have your interesting take on uh, why that may be the the case here with uh, telegraphing exactly what they're planning to do, as threatening as that might seem to many of us? But um, just to take a step back on on what is being done, uh, not only in the Trump campaign itself, but the Heritage Foundation has got something called Project 2025, where they're planning to implement all sorts of uh, things and loyalty tests uh, with their ultimate goal of destroying the quote-unquote administrative state. Maybe you want to just briefly address what these other pieces of the uh, Republican and Trump-aligned apparatus are doing. Yeah, when I was talking about the Trump campaign leaking that stuff, that was part of what I was thinking. We we really need to see the Heritage Foundation and the Trump campaign as like one and the same. They're working together like hand in glove. The Heritage Foundation is using kind of traditional Reaganite excuses, uh, like this like anti-administrative state rhetoric that's always been kind of dangerous but never taken super seriously by the mainstream media. They're using that as kind of cover to create what would actually be not a destruction of the administrative state, but remaking it in a fascist image. So basically getting rid of everybody that is loyal to the Constitution and not to Trump personally, right? which is to say getting rid of everybody who would obey the law and do their job instead of redo their job to enshrine Trump's power and put his power as far out of the hands of voters as possible. This is something that happens in a lot of authoritarian governments, probably like all of them. For listeners, I think that the most obvious way this would play out is go to the Department of Justice, for instance, 
fire literally everyone who's interested in enforcing the law and just replace them solely with people who will abuse their power to harass people consider leftists or on the left at all, just Democrats probably, with illegal arbitrary arrests, legal harassment, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, there would be a free pass to anybody that's considered loyal to Trump. So the domestic terrorists that were involved in the January 6th insurrection, no more prosecutions of them, no more prosecutions of anybody probably doing domestic terrorism on the right. So think about what that means for abortion clinics, for drag shows, for anybody trying to be gay in public. And you begin to get a real good idea of why this is straight up fascism. This is exactly what fascist governments do is they create a legal system that is a permission structure to extra legal, self-appointed, you know, arbiters of public morality, right? The kind of brown shirts thing, you know, you can see that the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys are, are ready. They're ready to take advantage of a system where the federal government says you can do whatever you want to anyone you want and we will look the other way. That was Amanda Marcotte, a senior politics writer at Salon.com, who writes the biweekly politics newsletter Standing Room Only, and is the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump Worshipping Monsters. Find a link to Marcotte's recent columns by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Soon after being elected Speaker of the House on October 25th, Mike Johnson, the once little-known Republican representative from Louisiana, pledged to form a bipartisan fiscal commission to study the national debt and social safety net spending, what he declared was the greatest threat to our national security. When Johnson chaired the Republican Study Committee several years ago, he and his GOP colleagues supported changes to Social Security and Medicare that they argued would save these programs from insolvency. Social Security trustees expect a shortfall in the program's trust fund as soon as 2033 or 34, due to the aging of the U.S. population and declining birth rates. In response to the proposed commission, over 100 organizations sent a letter to Congress opposing its creation, which they say is designed to fast-track cuts to Social Security and Medicare behind closed doors and will likely propose raising the retirement age and a reduction in benefits. The Biden administration agreed, calling this commission a death panel for Social Security and Medicare. Your reporter spoke with Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works, the convening member of the National Strength and Social Security Coalition. Here he discusses opposition to the creation of a fiscal commission and the simplest and fairest way to address an expected Social Security shortfall which he says is to remove the cap on the amount of wages subject to the Social Security payroll tax. We specifically at Social Security Works were formed in 2010 to fight against a um, so-called bipartisan commission. It was really just a convening of billionaires, puppet politicians, uh, and then some fig leaves uh, called the Bowles-Simpson Commission, which was set up to cut Social Security and Medicare and to hide that from the public view. Uh, We find ourselves right back in this situation again, Mm -hmm. uh, 13 years later, where we are fighting a commission that the Republicans are trying 
through hook and crook and anything in in between to set up to cut Social Security and Medicare and to hide that uh, action, the looting of the American people from those people. Uh, And so that's why it's so incredibly important that we're having this conversation right now, because I do want to say that although I am optimistic that we will win as we have time and time before, there's a slight shift in the sentiment in this town that's sort of going toward an acceptance of a commission as possibly just the price that needs to be paid to get things done. Uh, and that is just a sucker's bet. Um, it is never uh, a price that is uh, should be paid, and it never leads to getting things done. All that happens is the billionaires use it as an excuse to attack Social Security uh, and try to, to keep their fingerprints off of it. And, Alex, for many years now, we've uh, read in the media about the looming threat of, uh, of Social Security and Medicare financing shortfall. I believe uh, they say Social Security will meet a shortfall in 2033, Medicare in 2031. And I wonder if you would just gauge the accuracy of these predictions, uh, as well as uh, recap for us your formula for saving Social Security and making sure not only that it's uh, solvent for years to come, but that it's strengthened and that you actually uh, are able to get a, a more livable wage and uh, a more resilient uh, w- way to use your social safety net benefits. Um, tell us about that, if you would. Yeah, it's a really important discussion, and I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm being um, understandable in this, because it's it, once you understand it, it's so clear what's going on. So... What solvency means in the case of programs like Social Security, systems like Social Security and Medicare, is that all of the promised benefits can be paid. Uh, and then in the case of Social Security, it's incredibly small C conservative. Um, for 75 years is what they consider solvency. So into the next century. Uh, and that's what I want. I want all promised benefits uh, to be paid. In fact, I want more. But so when they say that there is a solvency crisis, let's make sure we understand what the problem is. The problem is that in 2033 or 2034, depending, but in about a decade, uh, without any action, Social Security benefits will be cut automatically to match the amount of money that is going into Social Security from dedicated revenue from the payroll taxes uh, that we see coming out of our paychecks. That's a huge problem. In a decade, benefits are going to go down by 20%. That's the problem. Now, to solve that problem, you have to prevent benefits from going down 20%, right? Because the problem is the benefits going down. Now, luckily, there's a simple solution to the problem of benefits going down in a decade, which is to have the ultra-wealthy pay into Social Security on all of their income instead of just the first $160,000 of income, which is what it is now. So think about someone like Elon Musk, who might stop paying into Social Security in the first second of the first day of every year. 
while the vast majority of the American people pay in all year long. A person who makes about $1 million a year stops paying into Social Security on Valentine's Day every year, around the middle of February. So this is a real threat and problem. In a decade, benefits will go down by 20%. But the solution is also very clear. We have millionaires and billionaires pay into Social Security on all of their income. And not only can we then pay promised benefits into the next century, meaning fully solvent, we can actually expand benefits by $200 a month for every single person in this country. That was Alex Lawson, executive director of the group Social Security Works. Learn more about groups opposing the Republican Party's proposed fiscal commission to cut Social Security and Medicare benefits by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In early January 2023, Yale University graduate workers, including teachers and researchers, voted 90% in favor of unionizing. Local 33 of Unite Here is a sister union to Locals 34 and 35, which have represented Yale's clerical, technical, housekeeping, grounds, and food service workers on campus for decades. More recently, on December 16th, 99.4% of Local 33 members representing 3,200 graduate teachers and researchers at Yale, voted in favor of a new contract. The vote came at the end of a year that has seen an explosion of union organizing and contract victories at several major educational institutions and within diverse industries across the U.S. Local 33's victory came after 30 years of staunch opposition from a succession of top Yale administrators and the Yale Corporation. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhus spoke with Sasha Tabachnikova, a fourth-year Ph.D. candidate in immunobiology and a member of the Union Bargaining Committee. Here she talks about the contract she and other members won and why she believes the vote was almost unanimous. It's the first contract for Yale graduate students, grad workers. So I think, you know, that was incredibly exciting for people. There are so many just like truly history making changes in this contract that I think, you know, everyone was obviously unanimously in support of the wage increases, the improvements to health care, a grievance procedure that covers fair treatment. Like none of these were things that were accessible to graduate workers at Yale before. Yeah. Say a little more about each of those things, if you would, like like wages, wage increases and, you know, the different provisions to protect workers in the bargaining unit from, I don't know, maybe retaliation or just unfair treatment. Just can you give us a little more specifics? You know, in terms of wages for PhD researchers and teachers, it's a 18 to 19 percent raise uh, that goes into effect for the spring semester. So very, very soon. You know, I, I started my PhD during the pandemic when I think sort of rent prices in New Haven and all around the country were sort of stalled. 
Uh, but then when inflation and, and the end of the pandemic, like rent has skyrocketed here. Uh, there's a lot of, of students, postdocs who live in New Haven. So, you know, people are spending the majority of their wages made through their PhD programs on rent. So I think that's a, that's a huge change. That means people have money to pay off loans. People have money to start savings account, send to their families, et cetera. And then, you know, in terms of like teaching rates, those have gone up 35%. And then the hourly minimum also went up 30% and, and will go up even more over the course of the contract. So th those are some of the things in terms of wages that I think people were just really thrilled about. In terms of healthcare, I think the piece that is, is really exciting is the new dental plan that we have. Our, our dental plan used to not cover a lot of procedures, had a pretty low maximum um, and, and a very high you know, individual contribution. And now we have a plan that's you know, very comparable to that of like sister unions at Yale, so Local 34, the Clerical Technical Union, and um, 35, the Custodial Janitorial Union. And it's a, it's a much higher maximum. It's a much more reasonable individual contribution, and it covers a lot more procedures. And then, yeah, in, in terms of fair treatment, it's a very unique kind of job. Your entire future career depends on your boss. They're your mentor and your boss. And situations happen that, you know, there are existing university processes, but people don't always trust those processes. Those processes take a very long time. It's very hard to get any sort of like support through those processes. And so having a grievance procedure and a grievance procedure that covers issues of like discrimination, harassment, assault, it, it just gives people more avenues and, and importantly, also a timeline to those processes and, and knowing that they will be resolved. And while they're being resolved, you know, our contract now has a provision around interim support measures while somebody's filing a grievance. You know, it's, it's just so interesting because I've been covering this for 30 years and various administrations that have just pulled out all the stops to prevent the grad workers from unionizing. And then when they, you know, finally, well, under Biden's NLRB, they got the right to, to have the vote. And it was overwhelming, 90% people who voted. Do you have any insight into that? All things in, in bargaining, overall, it, it was a really respectful and, and um, efficient process. And, and there's like very good faith on both ends. So, you know, I think once there was like a good amount of, of mutual trust between the union bargaining committee and, and the university bargaining committee. I'm also very proud of how fast this contract was negotiated. Like we won our union about a year ago. I think like all things, once we understood each other's priorities and understood, you know, that there's a lot of shared interest in terms of like keeping Yale competitive and making it the top choice school, we were able to negotiate them. That was Sasha Tabachnikova, a member of Local 33's Union Bargaining Committee at Yale University. Learn more about Yale graduate students' 30-year campaign to win union recognition and their first contract by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOZO in Knoxville, Tennessee, KCBP in Modesto, California, Global Community Radio Nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.